0: This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is sponsored by When Darkness Ends by New York Times bestselling author Alexandra Ivy. When Darkness Ends is the newest book in Ivy's Guardians of Eternity series, which features insatiable vampires and their werewolf bodyguards. Find out what happens when a hedonistic vampire chief and a beautiful fairy are forced to work together to prevent a genocidal civil war. When Darkness Ends is available everywhere books are sold and at KensingtonBooks.com. <laughs>
1: This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 109, and we're recording on Thursday, June 4th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. This, this is actually our... We recorded Monday our post-BEA thing, but we we're a little too close to the metal there. Now we're actually through BEA, I think. Don't you think?
0: We're through it. I don't know if my sleep patterns are <laughs> through it <laughs> or my mood. I've been, well, you can attest. We've both been cranky pants all Yeah.
1: Week. Cranky this week. Uh, you know, coming off the 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 show and start of summer and new patterns and I don't know, but we're trying to shake it off. Yeah, we we're off. gonna
0: we're gonna shake it off.
1: Um, let's see how we're doing here. It's you know, it's been a weird start to June in here in New York. It's been like fifty degrees and rainy for like four days in a row. Mm-hmm. Same very here in Richmond.
0: Yeah, it's been cool and rainy, a very welcome you know, refreshing change, especially it was so hot in New York last week during Book Expo. It seems like it always is. Like you get all sweaty and then you go walk around in the convention center with all the other sweaty people.
1: And it's the least pleasant walk in New York, (laughs) I think, 34th and 8th to Javits. It's like four crosstown avenues and it's not attractive. It's not quaint. It's not, it's just... And there's no shade, weirdly. I don't know how there's – one of the great cities in the world, and there's no shade for like one huge swath. So it's been nice. And it's A-plus reading weather is what I was trying to say. Yes, it is napping weather. But let's go back to reading. (laughs) They kind of go in and out, nap to read to nap to read. (laughs) Uh, in and out. So that's what we're doing. But we do summer is coming up and we got a summer thing to talk about real quick.
0: We do. So um, back at the end of the year last year, we did a special box in the Book Riot store of our favorite books of 2014 or some of them. And we decided to do something similar for summer. So this is not our quarterly box. It's just a one off. It's totally its own thing. Uh, But you can get four books that we love. They come from a bunch of different genres. Some of them were released this year and some are, you know, from within the last couple of years. But books. That we think make for great summer reading, not necessarily fluffy beach reading, but if you buy it, you'll find out why. So there's four great books and three items from the Book Riot store in this box. goes for a hundred bucks. You get more than a hundred bucks worth of value there. So you can go to store.bookriot.com. We only made two hundred of them. We're selling through them pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, almost so, more, almost half are gone already, right?
0: Like yeah, by closed. the time the show goes out, more than half will be gone. Um, so check that out if you want four books that we picked that we love um, to get your summer jump started right with some Book Riot swag too.
1: We got a shout out this week. So uh, kind of good. a funny one. So there's a show on uh, TV land, which is one of Nickelodeon's series, yes. right? Yeah, I think right. it's owned
0: by Nick, or I don't know if there's a parent company or not. used to be Nick, at, you know, remember, Yeah.
1: Do you watch Nick at Night when you were a kid?
0: I have such fond memories Me of too. watching the Dick Van Dyke show, especially on Nick at The Knight. Patty
1: Duke show with mm-hmm. identi- identical cousins. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess TV Land is sort of, they, it's Nick for adults, but they've got a show on there called Younger, which is set in the publishing world. And is it based on a book
0: too? It is based on a book. I looked up the book earlier this week, and mm. now, of course, I'm not looking at the title, so yeah. I couldn't tell you the author's anyway, name. It
1: stars Sutton Foster, who's great. She's a, she's a big Broadway star, and she was on um, Amy Sherman Palladino's follow-up show to Gilmore Girls called Bunheads. But anyway, uh, we, we, Book Riot got mentioned. So it's said in the publishing world, and they're in a marketing meeting, and they're describing, I guess, the ad buys they're doing? Is yeah, that what's happening?
0: It looks like either ad buys or social Publicity media marketing or, something, or something. Yeah. something. It's for a romance novel. Right. So they're and,
1: like, what do they say? You t- remind Oh, me. and
0: she says, well, something like, social media is buzzing from uh, Facebook to Book Riot to Goodreads. Yeah.
1: I don't mind being uh slammed in there between a two hundred and fifty million dollar company and a uh, twenty five billion dollar company like a little book right right in the middle uh, so that was that's a lot of fun so if you're into that show um i i some some uh, people were tweeting at us immediately, and yeah. a lot of people really seem to like it so if you're into, you're into books obviously you're listening to this show. Um, if you're looking something for fluffy and fun, uh, it, yeah, the, I watched a few minutes. It looked okay.
0: I watched. I TVOed like a middle of the night rerun of the episode. I watched the whole thing. It's really cute. Um, you know. Sutton Foster plays a woman who's in her 40s. She's a mom from like the Jersey suburbs, and I haven't gone back to, fought, you know, to see the beginning of the series. But it looks like she somehow finds her way to New York and gets a job in publishing, and she's pretending to be 26.
1: Oh, that's what the deal is. She's pretending yeah. to be 26. Yeah, everyone that she's bit, working
0: with thinks that she's a 26 year old.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I can see the uh, inherent comic tension of that setup.
0: Yeah, it was really cute. I'm probably gonna, you know, like spend some afternoons catching up on Younger while I'm doing the kind of work that I can do while there's TV on. Right, right,
1: right. (laughs) Um, So that's that's one fun shot we talked about. That was
0: really fun. So we teased this
1: last week. So the big, I mean, boy, you know, it's it, it only because there's another Harper Lee book. Is this not the big publishing news of the year, uh, right? I mean, in, if in most years this would be the big thing of the recent years that E.L. James is publishing a fourth book in the Fifty Shades of well, it's not really in the series because I don't even know how you describe it, but it's the first book of Fifty Shades of Gray series, Fifty Shades of mm-hmm. Gray, told from the male protagonist Christian Gray's point of view, um, and it's coming announced it on June first. And in only 18 days, it's coming on June 18th, which is yeah, crazy. Big,
0: the, and it's June 18th because that's Christian Gray's birthday, birthday right. in the world of the story.
1: Because I guess that's super important. Think of all the people that wouldn't buy this if it wasn't released on Christian Gray's birthday. <laughs> I mean, just think of the, just, lost, the opportunity cost of the 19th. It would have been a disaster. So. I
0: hope that there are bookstores planning like really weird midnight release parties that are Christian Grey birthday mm. parties for this. Um,
1: and apparently James wrote this or a part of it for a charity auction, I guess. Oh, yeah. And has decided now to uh, release it because dollar, dollar, dollar bills. Um, mm-hmm. People have requested it. It was only, re- you know, they auctioned off for a huge amount of money to an individual. Of course, every 50 Shades of <laughs> Grey fan is like, uh, hmm, What about me, man? Yeah, I'd like to have some of that. So interesting. We talked about last week, you took the, you took the, it's going to outsell the Harper Lee.
0: Align. I think it. I think if they do a good job publicizing it, I think it will hmm. like because I've well, I've been thinking about this more because I've had to defend this statement on Twitter several times.
1: Yeah, we call that sunk cost fallacy. But go uh-huh. ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm in there. Yeah. Um the Harper Lee is it's really interesting and exciting and everybody who loves to kill a mockingbird is going to want to read it. I don't know if they're going to want to read it immediately and it really mm. depends on if it's good or not. Like it's Well, you're totally, saying
1: that this is good proof the great well, book.
0: Well, well, no, no. Well, basically. I mean, kind, kind of. of. Yeah. It I kind mean, of is. Yeah. So the Harper not in a bad Lee way. like it's embargoed. There are like three people in the world who have read it and they signed their souls over essentially to not talk about it before it comes out. But once reviewers in the media and readers with Goodreads, account, Goodreads accounts and bloggers, like once people start reading the new Harper Lee, if it's not good, I think it's going to kind of fall off the mm. cliff. Like there will probably be academics that assign it anyway as a follow-up or as a way to teach to kill a mockingbird, but – We've, when the news came out, we were, you and Amanda and I were all sort of conjecturing like, well, if this is the story that she originally turned in and then it got edited to be tell the, you know, present the characters when they're younger, that's a more interesting story. And that's how we got to kill a mockingbird. Then like, then it's possible that this first Mm. thing isn't going to be that great. And if it turns out that it's not, I'll be super sad because I want it to be great. But, People want, are. I think the people who were crazy over Fifty Shades of Grey and just were rabid for those stories and wanted more of them are going to be really interested in getting Christian Gray's perspective, and they're going to pick up this book just to get that. So what I, you're I, think saying is ba- that I think it's bad. I think it's bad
1: proof. They call it in, in the movie business review proof. Gray is you, review proof, sort of. I think to so. This degree. Um, yeah, you could be right about that. I. I guess I think about. I think you're right. the lo- The tale of Ghost of a Watchman will likely be longer, even if it's just sort of average. I guess what I'm wondering about is how much, you know, the sales of the trilogy really tailed off by book three um, of the Fifty Shades trilogy. I've looked at some of the numbers in the UK where they made it more Mm -hmm. publicly available. So I think a lot of people read the first one, and I don't know if all the people that read the third one are even going to try this one. I, I just wonder if this well is dry. Um, I mean, not dry, but you know, not uh, overflowing. We'll see. I mean, I think it go. There's several possible scenarios I wouldn't be mm-hmm. shocked by. Um, but you know, well, and
0: now there are all the people who have seen the movie who didn't read the book. Yeah. Or and who maybe are interested in that shifted perspective? Sure, maybe too.
1: it's certainly possible. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Boy, I mean, it's like I guess with. I'm trying to think of the last. Dave Eggers does this every now and again, where it's like, hey, "I've got a new book coming out in three days." Right. You know, like that's really the only <laughs> one I can think of that does stuff like this. Can you think of any other analogs to this sort of? Hey, two weeks. We're no, a new book.
0: I really can't. I was, I, I can't. Usually, we start hearing about things six months, eight months sometimes a year Yeah, or Steve
1: Larson that knew the In Spiders advance. one. Yeah. We heard like 10 years ago, it feels it's like we heard about right,
0: that. When there's a deal made. So this is, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Somebody on our our back channel um, compared this to being like the closest thing that publishing gets to a Beyonce surprise album right. drop. yes. And I did hear, interestingly, that um, – So, this was just announced earlier this week. Was it? I guess it was Monday morning that this great, yeah, that this stuff about gray was announced. That Random House had told bookstores apparently that same day that their orders for, you know, however many copies they wanted to have on release day were due that afternoon. Wow. So, this all happened really quickly. So, the bookstores hadn't even heard. Bookstores didn't have time to like solicit pre-orders from customers. They're, they I guess they're just going to guess about mm. the demand within their readership for the book, and then oh, probably maybe like place really aggressive first orders so that they'd have stock of it. I'm really interested.
1: Super interesting. It's um, I it was on Amazon. We link on Amazon to the site mm-hmm. for these sorts of things, and it's. 10 bucks for the paperback and 10 bucks for the ebook. I thought that was interesting. In, the pricing was exactly the same.
0: I wonder um, if they'll drop the ebook price on the 18th.
1: Why would you? Why drop it? Yeah, I
0: don't know. I'm well, serious. I, mean, I don't
1: know. It, I am curious. i do not know i had not seen that recently where the paper version and the. Uh, it's a cheap paperback too. 10 bucks? Yeah, 10 one, bucks is buy? a cheap
0: paperback. Why would you?
1: Again, I don't know much about <laughs> pricing of books, um, but it seems to me that you couldn't. Why charge it? I mean, the the economic thing would be to make it more expensive at the beginning right cuz demand is high and people are right. going to pay 20 bucks for it I was thinking at least make it fourteen ninety five, like standard paperback. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe they're, it's very interesting. I, maybe the 50 Shades of Grey people are accustomed to paying $9.99. Maybe they're, they're pricing it more like um, romance than, um, you know, a trade paperback for oh, literary yeah, fiction or something like that's that. That's a good
0: point. I wonder how long it is.
1: Does it say? I haven't looked to see. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't say. It hasn't said it, yet. Not
0: in this press release. I'm guessing.
1: Maybe it's not very long. That's an interesting point. If, if it's something she wrote for an auction, yeah. Or maybe she's fleshed it out since then. I don't know. Uh, bad choice of words.
0: Um, <laughs> I was trying so hard. Yeah, I know. I, did, I didn't mean it. In my,
1: my brain was like, warning. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that would be super interesting to see. Um,
0: I'm going to read it.
1: It's it's lined, It's line. shaping up to be a big year for publishing in terms of sales between this um, and uh, the Harper Lee, and mm-hmm. then we get the Steve Larson book. In the fall, which I think will probably oh, sell. Oh, and there's a million. the new
0: Franzen in the fall. Oh which yeah, the th- new he's Franzen. Guaranteed yeah, to sell that's going to
1: I mean, for literary fiction, a whole solo.
0: lot. And um, City on Fire, that that yeah. huge yeah. debut novel. Yeah, literary um, fiction. Got, I got,
1: those. I mean, they will yeah. be big sellers for literary fiction. I think, mm-hmm. but we're not talking Fifty Shades or Divergent oh, or yeah, Mocking. Yeah. Like and, those. Those are the kinds of books that move a needle and for it's publishing. Maybe,
0: Worth just saying out loud again, that's why we're interested in this and why we keep talking about it. Anytime that we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey on the site or on the show, we get... People who, you know, want to make sure that we know that they don't like Fifty Shades of Grey. It and that's very fine. important
1: to people who don't like Fifty Shades of Grey to let everyone know that they don't. You are
0: totally allowed to not like Fifty Shades of Grey. Pull your little red wagon. That's mm-hmm. fine. I read it. I was not a huge fan of it. But what I think of it or what you think of it or what any reader thinks of the book doesn't discount what a huge phenomenon it was. It, it, this is the biggest. This series is the biggest publishing event of our lifetimes yeah, so I, far. I would think there's no so. denying it.
1: Um, and the most interesting—I haven't read the book, and I probably never will. But I still I cannot imagine
0: it, you reading. I book. still <laughs> find
1: it super interesting. I was talking on Twitter the other day. Someone was saying they were—I you know, can't believe we have to still talk about this. Like you know, I still find the whole story of E.L. James, and the, you know, it's at it's the nexus of so many interesting things going on in books right now. You've got the fan fiction angle, the self-pub angle. You know, a major house picking up self-pub. Um, you've got, you know, it's it's layered on top of this other huge, phenom- controversial Twilight phenomenon. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the the foundation on which it's built. And then you have, um, you know, digital reading being a huge part of it, word of mouth, social media st- um, structures, the I guess increasingly normalization and domestication of erotic and romance in the wider reading community that's happening. So like, almost everything that's interesting about books is, you know here in some form or another i think mm-hmm. um, and it's very difficult to have to think about it as anything other than kind of a uh, representative of, what, of what's going on and what makes modern publishing so interesting. So I continue to be fascinated by it as well. Um, speaking of technology and social media stuff, this is something we saw. Did you see this at BEA?
0: I did. I saw their table at BEA. I didn't get a chance to really uh, mess with it much, but I've been poking around this morning. So this was interesting. It's called
1: Book Grabber, just how you would think it would be spelled except for the E. So maybe you th- do expect to have no e since this is the <laughs> internet these days, so it's an online marketing tool designed to to give new readers um, to authors so basically what you do is if you share enough of a post or a bit of a story, you will then unlock for yourself the whole book is my understanding is that what your understanding of how this works
0: uh yes, yeah so if I wanted to I'm poking around at it right now. Yeah. You yeah, you earn a free copy of a book by doing social sharing. And so I'm I clicked on Modern Marijuana Living: Lighting the Way to a Healthy <laughs> Lifestyle by Michael Green. And wait, I clicked on it and nothing's happening. This is not a very good on-air demo. No, bad um, on-air demo. But the idea is you earn your way to a free copy of the book by sharing stuff on social media. Mm -hmm. And they say, you know, you grab your free books by agreeing to share the info, whatever the info is on your social media account. And so the idea is that publishers as well as authors will be able to get supposedly critical analytics on users who download the books or previews, which they believe will ultimately drive more pre-orders for new releases. Mm. Um, And there are these, you know, they can do automatic pushes to things, friends and fans can grab the free book. And so the thinking basically is you're getting people to publicize your book for you in order to get the book for free. It's an interesting yeah. idea. It it runs into the same Catch-22 that all of the new like book pairing tech things that we've looked at on the show run into, which is that it's really only as compelling as the books that it mm-hmm. has within it. And book grabber has a lot of classics that are in, that are available in the public domain. It's like, why would I give you a tweet for something that I could get for free in a million places online? And then the other books that aren't public domain, like on the homepage, as you scroll down, none of them are things that I recognize from Mm. having been published in the last few years. Um, That doesn't mean that they haven't been, but we pay a lot of attention and none of this stuff looks familiar. Well, me. if it's so, a new
1: product, it's going to be a chicken and egg problem, right? Where you need mm-hmm. some titles to get users and you need users to get titles. And, you know, maybe they'll have to do some loss leading by buying rights to certain books and giving, you know, like it yeah, might have to I do think- something like that. So, the, But the basic idea is like trying to figure out how to harness social media word of mouth mm-hmm. and incentivize people to. Talk about your book so that their social circles see it. I mean, this is not out of the realm of the stuff we do to some degree in in terms of like, you know, sharing things on Facebook and watching organic reach. Like, we don't, we really, a couple times we've done giveaways where you had to tweet or share it on Facebook, but we've kind of backed off some of that stuff, mostly because we don't like it, to be honest. Um, But it's, I don't know, I, I have, I feel like this kind of pay for play, payola thing. It's never really going to work. I just, yeah. I just don't. I just don't feel like it's a behavior people like.
0: I yeah, I don't think it's a behavior people like either. And I especially don't like asking readers to publicize a book they haven't read yeah. yet. Yeah, like, Right. It's a, that's the thing I'm not going to do is endorse a thing that I haven't had a chance to read yet. It seems like if you built a. I, if I were trying this, like if you made me try this model somehow, I think I would tweak it and say you like you're in the book grabber ecosystem and you earn here, read a book, you earn points for yeah. sharing books that you've read through our system. And then you can use those points towards your next reads, but that you don't have to publicize a thing to get the same thing. Um, right. I don't love it. I just don't generally love it. Um, but it's an interest. It's, it's interesting to watch all the different things that get tried and how those work with the limited title selections that are available. And to think about like, okay, what if they got the new Stieg Larson? I bet people would Mm -hmm. tweet about that in order to get a free or discounted copy of it because they loved, you know, the first three and they want to read the next one. Um, but it's tough. Like I, it's tough to think. I don't know that we're ever going to know really how well this tool or any of the tools could be when they have, unless or until they have titles that are highly appealing. And I, you I know, could sort see of it in some sort
1: of like if Amazon or Goodreads or you know but you book ebook retailer wanted to sort of gamify their platform yeah, to yeah. some degree, like maybe if you for every tweet that you use this hashtag or a link or whatever, you got you know x number of points and once mm-hmm. you got x plus 10x points put together right, right. you could redeem it for a uh, $10 worth of merchandise or something like that i, I guess i just never have heard of something that really works like Mm-mm. that it it takes a lot of time and i guess for people that maybe are more cost sensitive than i am like for me to tweet 10 times about 10 different books to get a free 4.99 ebooks i'd rather just pay the 4.99 myself well and
0: like does it matter how many followers you have? Like, well,
1: You would think so.
0: Or are they, if you have two followers, are they going to give you the same right. reward? Will BookGrabber give you the same reward as if you have 25,000 followers? That doesn't seem to make any sense for the exposure. Okay, you have a bunch of sham achieve. Twitter
1: accounts and I'll have them yeah. tweeting? So you could, uh, I'm so sure you could read a bunch around. of
0: public domain books think, that yeah, you could get right. somewhere else. Yeah. I,
1: I mean, I guess, I guess the central insight here is that social media sharing matters which no one i think disagrees with the question i think a lot of marketers and remember clout tried to do this a lot of other mm-hmm. people have tried to do this of like can you can you do some give someone some sort of reward that will induce them to tweet about your thing and the other thing as we see some people they tweet about an entry into a thing or something like that i'm also much less likely to click on a thing someone has tweeted cuz i if i know that it's part of a giveaway Mm, or mm -hmm. uh, rewards or something like that. If
0: they're only tweeting it to earn a thing, not because it feels like a genuine endorsement. Yeah,
1: because, I mean, social proof is one thing. If someone tweets like, I really love this book, that matters. Right, right. But if someone says, check out X so I can get a free Chevy Malibu XT, Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Uh, that's not really social proof. Right. Um, That's something else. So we'll see. Um, But
0: That's a thing that exists. It exists, and
1: we, you know, we like to look at this sort of thing. Here's something we don't like to look at. We do not like to look at um, the the ongoing saga of how publishing is crappy to women. No, we don't. So Nicola Griffith, and this story has gotten passed around. I've seen this Mm -hmm. in a bunch of different places. Really, great job. On
0: I'm glad it got the traction that it got.
1: Nicola Griffith, she's um, uh, a novelist who lives in Seattle. Um, She did a study. Mm-hmm. Um, basically saying she counted, let's see, which prizes did she count? Um, let's see the pull. Oh, it's just the Pulitzer prizes. Pardon me. No, no.
0: Mm-mm. I'm looking Six all, all the graphs awards. are running
1: into one for me here. Um, there's,
0: uh, the Pulitzer, let's the, see the, the man booker,
1: the national book award, the national book critic circle of the world, the Hugo award, and the Newbery Medal. So Hugo, Hugo is sci-fi fantasy. Newbery is for kids' books, right? Mm-hmm. Um, National Book Critics Circle is American fiction. National Book Award is American fiction. Man Booker is English Commonwealth, which I guess now include. Well, I don't even know what it is now.
0: Man Booker, I think, now includes... The U.S. All English language. All English
1: language, yeah. Something like and that. And the Pulitzer Prize, it, of course, is American. It's a
0: controversial switch.
1: And so basically what she did is like, Looking beyond just the gender breakdown of the winners, but to look at the content
0: mm-hmm. and
1: looking at how the breakdown of books that are by men, but also then about men, by women and about men, by women about women and by men about women.
0: Man, these are just pie they're, charts They're, of they're sadness. so uh,
1: – let's see. So
0: – And she's got like 14 or 15 years worth of data here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. So the Pulitzer is probably the most – well – I don't know the the Man Booker and the Pulitzer are, are the most lopsided. So from 20, 2000 to twenty fifteen, so you looked at the last fifteen years. More than three quarters of the books are about men and boys. Mm-hmm. A little more than half of the books were by men about men and boys. But then another, I am eyeballing here, uh, third of the winners were by women about men and boys. Mm-hmm. Um, only, jeez.
0: And none only of the winners were by women and about, about women. About women, girls.
1: Yeah, zero. Um, there was one that was by women that was sort of the the protagonists were equally about men and women. And then there were zero by by men about women, girls, and zero mm-hmm. by men about both. So only, gollies.
0: Mm-hmm. is a real sad
1: story. Only three. No. So is, am I reading this right? That zero yeah. of them are about women and girls alone?
0: Uh, no, there's uh, two. There were two winners by women about women and girls.
1: In the Pulitzers?
0: Oh, sorry. Oh, nope. Wrong chart. No, you are, re- you are uh, reading that correctly. There are zero. Zero.
1: None of the last 15 Pulitzer Prize winning novels were primarily about women and girls. Th- the, only, the closest you get is that three of the 15 were about men and women equally. Twelve out of 15 were about men and boys. Man, that's striking. Mm-hmm. Man, Booker, it's similar. There are two winners in the last fifteen years that were about girls and by women. Um, none that were by men about women and girls. So just two of the last fourteen of the Man Booker National Book Award. Not quite as bad.
0: Yeah, about half were by men about men and boys, and then there were another two. So there's eight that were by men telling men stories. Mm-hmm. Another two that are by women telling men's stories. One by men telling stories about both men and women.
1: Three, Three by women
0: right. telling stories about both men and women. And then two by women telling women and girls stories. I
1: get. I mean, so one way to look at it is I, the kids' book one is the most evenly spread. Mm-hmm. Not as bad. Um, in fact, depending the on how you The largest chunk look, of
0: the pie there is books uh, right. by women about women and girls, which right. is – five.
1: And eight of the fifteen were mm-hmm. about women and girls about women and written girls, by right. either gender. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty good split. But you look at the adult books and it is a disaster.
0: Yeah. This is these are a really stark and important reminder that even though when we looked at the Vita study earlier this year, there's improvement in the representation of books by women being reviewed and women doing writing in book media. We're not near Parody. And then mm. when we look at the kinds of stories that we value and reward, this is, this is very clear evidence that we are still valuing and rewarding stories about men and boys more than we value and reward stories about women and girls.
1: So the top line stat I just sort of put together uh, for the four adult awards, seven out of the 60 awards were given to books by uh, about women and girls Ugh. and zero of those were written by men. Zero of those seven written by men. Um, boy, I don't know. How, I, I don't know what to say about it, except well, that it's, I'm glad we know this.
0: Yeah, and I think we, this is another piece in how we talk about right. it. Um, people will say maybe men just write better books. And maybe <laughs> stories about, maybe stories about men are just more interesting. Jeff,
1: <laughs> uh, that men was, are fascinating. That's not even an ironic. Laugh. That was a genuine <laughs> laugh. <laughs>
0: Oh. <laughs> stories about men are just, well, you know, we're social. This is interesting. We're socialized to care yes. about men's stories. And men in our culture are allowed to say that they aren't interested in or can't relate to stories about women and girls. We have women's fiction is a thing, mm-hmm. you know, that gets its own section of the bookstore often and is its own marketing category. Men's fiction is not. Stories about men and boys are just fiction right. that everyone is expected to or be interested like in. Or
1: like mysteries and thrillers or something right. like that. Right, yeah.
0: But that everyone is expected to be interested in and to relate to. And this is similar to the way that people of color say you know, that they are raised reading books that are about primarily the white experience. They're supposed to be able to relate to those and to have empathy for them. But then white readers get to say, oh, I can't relate to this story about a black character, or, oh, I can't relate to the story about a character from a different socioeconomic class. We don't, white readers are let off the hook. And I think male readers are often let off the hook as well for not having to develop the kind of empathy and appreciation for stories that are different from our own. And that is happening in, and it's reflected in the books that we choose to to give awards to. And it would have been interesting if she had been able to go deeper into the data and look at the, uh, gender makeup of the judging groups mm. for these and see who's, who's calling the shots. Uh, but this is, you know, these numbers are not numbers that you can spin and they're not numbers that lie. These no. are stories about men and boys that are being valued more than the stories about women and girls are,
1: you know, one piece of it is that war stories are often, mm. you know, redeployment one. And, uh, what was the Long Road to the North, the Flanagan? The, the
0: Long Road to the Great North, the great, something yeah, like that? Yeah, and All great the white We Cannot See, I think, north. is a war story mm-hmm. too.
1: And often, uh, most of the time, men are protagonists of the stories because they carry the guns, rightly or wrongly. That's kind of how it works. You know, I'd be interested to see among the books by people of color that have won awards. Because I remember looking at this, and it's not as bad as you might think if you took these same four awards over the last 15 years, that people of color have won you know, quite a few of these. I don't know that it would come out to be representative the larger population, but from my own experience of reading these, those are books by people of color almost exclusively about people of color when they win awards.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's
1: some weird disjunction here between, you know, we'll award a person of color a book for winning for writing about people of color, but not a woman for writing about women. Like there's some yeah. sort of weird arbitrage going on there. I and I don't really know how to account for that.
0: Yeah, the way that I've heard it Described as people being like, like this black writer achieved something great by telling a story about black people that everyone can relate Mm -hmm. to. Um, Yeah. That's interesting. And, and it is interesting that we are not seeing that happening with this woman wrote a story about women and girls that even men can understand. Right. Like, I I think I like, I'm, you know, uh, we're both angry and frustrated about sexism and racism in publishing in an on an ongoing basis. But I, I want to say out loud, I think this sells male readers short, too. It's not just that women and girls stories get short shrift and that uh, we have important stories to tell that everyone should understand and mm-hmm. relate to. But when we assume that there needs to be some sort of like magical unicorn sparkle applied to a story about women in order for men to get it we're making assumptions that men can't understand women.
1: Yeah. It's interesting too, because of the four title for the four awards, the one that has, I guess you'd say the most equitable distribution is the Hugo, mm-hmm. which is also interesting because that's voted upon um, by right. readers. It's, it takes, nom- there's a process of nomination, but the actual final award is voted upon. So when it's left to the, you know, one, postulate here, but when it's left to the readers to decide, they actually will vote more equitably than just sort of these judging panels, the National Book Critics Circle Award. I mean, not surprisingly, the Nas- National Book Critics Circle Award, well, we know that most of the people writing about books are men because we've watched mm-hmm. the Vita count you know, we've right, been watching right. about that. And they're members of the National um, Book Critics Award. So, you know, it's one of those things that I think uh, hopefully it's one of those things where light and air will um, do some... Uh, do some work. Mm-hmm. You know, once people yeah. see this and maybe people who are in the judging, they'll sort of wake up and kind of the dream of liberal education is if you see your biases, maybe you can have some mastery of them. Um, you know, that's that's true up to a point. But this certainly it's only possible if you at least can see that there might be a problem there.
0: Right. We'll um, uh, put the link in the show notes yeah. for you so that you can check it out and go into the data yourself but brava and thank you to Nicola Griffiths for putting that together Uh, before we do more numbers for things we should talk about our sponsor yeah
1: we got it we've got Scribd is back Uh, Scribd is a subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks so if you just want to go right now don't want to hear any more go over to Scribd.com slash book riot and get started with your free month that's 30 day all you can listen or read audiobooks ebooks and comics $8.99 Eight ninety nine. After that, if you should choose to, to 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 continue, which I think you probably will, Scribd has books from some of the biggest publishers around: Harper Collins, Simon Schuster, HMH. Audiobooks from Penguin, Random House, also independent publishers like McSweeney's, Counterpoint, and Tin House. Thirty thousand audiobooks, and that we've seen this. That catalog is growing. I think probably this thirty thousand is probably out of date by now. Sorry. Uh, to say. I think there's probably more than that at this point, including some like brand new releases. I mean, that's one of mm-hmm. the more interesting things we've seen happen with subscription services recently, especially script is like, you're not just sort of doing that Netflix thing of things have been out for a few years, mm-hmm. right? Getting to Netflix, you're getting things that came out like this week, mm-hmm. um, available right then. Well, uh, pretty
0: n- recent, yeah.
1: Hundreds of collections carried by the team of editors. And as you read and you recommend or excuse me, reading rate, they'll recommend Based on what you liked and what you haven't liked. Um, 30 days of unlimited reading and listening right now. Scribd.com slash book, right? Do we have picks? Do we have Yeah. Picks? We,
0: well, we've got now when you go to Scribd.com slash book, you'll get our curated there list. There you go.
1: That's right.
0: So you've got 15 books that we love, uh, there's a variety here. My favorite short story collection of all time, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us, mm-hmm. is here. Um, a great YA novel uh, that deals with LGBTQ issues and sexual identity called Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe by Benjamin allier Science is in there. Uh, Sarah McLean's A Rogue by Any Other Name, which is the romance novel that Book Riot recommends more than any That's other. That's all right. If
1: you want to get started, you want to try romance, you think it might, you know, you're interested, but you're nervous. Mm -hmm. Start with Sarah McLean. That's what we always say.
0: And uh, if you, like I am intrigued, if you are, like I am intrigued by the BBC America series for Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is coming oh, up, I is think that, it is launches. Yeah, it launches, the show launches on June 13th. This is it's like an 800 page book. It's a very long um, book. So I'm going to be reading it on Scribd because that's a lot, it's easier to carry my iPad around than yeah. to carry the big book, but that's available on Scribd. Under the Skin by Michelle Faber is here. How to Be Black by Baratunde Thurston. Um, which I think is a just a really phenomenal memoir slash like social look at race in America, um, a sport and a pastime by James Salter, which is a steamy, wonderful mm. book by one of uh, our mutual favorite writers, uh, and we've got Bloodchild by Octavia Butler and. Because it's not a summer reading list without him. Angels and Demons by Dan Brown. yeah the Brizzle
1: himself. <laughs> um, I've got one pick I don't think I've mentioned before. Time and Again by Jack Finney is on script. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. It's a time travel story. And Stephen King himself called it The Great Time Travel Story. <gasps> Whoa. So it's very good book. Uh, it's long. There was a list that came out a while ago. This I think when I originally read it, it's been 10 years or so, of the best books that should be movies that aren't. This is on it. It's a time travel story. So what happens is this the main character is an ad man and he's recruited to join this sort of government time travel experiment. And you know, he doesn't have much going on in his life, so he decides to do it. And he he goes back to New York in eighteen eighty-two. So it's also a New York book. Um, and the mechanism of time travel is really interesting to think about. And he gets caught up in a story of, of romance and political intrigue and um uh, end of 19th century New York it's great it's a lot of fun it's a, you know it's kind of it's kind of genrey in terms of it's time you know it's like it feels like it's sci-fi but it's also a little more literary it's a, it's a great summer pick if you're looking for something that's not just off the airport rack um, and if you've got your uh, iPhone or iPad or your Samsung Galaxy X4 or whatever with your Scribd app, um, I really recommend Jack Finney. It's good for a plane flight or something where you want to get to the end um, and want to forget where you are and get lost in a book. So that's time and again by Jack Finney. And that's Scribd. Thank you so much to them for sponsoring the show, scribdcom dot com slash book riot. All right. What are we doing next? So uh, yeah. the, the Harper Lee uh, cash uh, carousel continues to spin. I linked to this today, um, a set of letters Harper Lee wrote to a friend of hers mm-hmm. um, up for auction. And it's just six typed letters. Expect to go for a cool quarter of a million oh. dollars. Whoa. And they're signed
0: with comic pseudonyms. Yes. Like the prisoner of Zenda. <laughs>
1: Uh the, the letters start before the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird um, while she was living in Monroeville and, and go through afterwards. There's a story about how after To Kill a Mockingbird was published, she, she wanted Esquire to publish something else and they refused, which was a huge mistake. Wow. Because she would publish nothing else until... Well, uh, July, whenever Mm -hmm. it goes to the Watchmen is is coming out. 14th. So I guess if you've got any Harper Lee memorabilia up in the attic, now's the time to get rid of it. You've been waiting for your opportunity, you know, to have some buzz around Harper Lee, and here it is.
0: Oh, man, I feel weird about this.
1: I'm assuming this story doesn't say, story in the Guardian, there'll be a link in the show notes. I'm assuming it's, um, what's this guy's name? The person, the the, uh, Harold Caulfield, Mm -hmm. who was the recipient of these, um... I'm assuming it's his estate that's auctioning them off, but it doesn't say where they're coming from. I mean, I should say this is this is this is standard operating procedure in literary world, right? Like, there's trade in rare materials mm-hmm. like this, so uh, it's the timing just yeah. is a little too bad. What well, you don't like? You oh, you don't I like don't,
0: it? I don't like this. I think this is ugh.
1: you don't like. I just need
0: to make some sounds for a second. You, wait,
1: so you don't like that the the Caulfield estate? I, Is auctioning off Harold I think there's a –
0: yeah, I think there's a difference between like an author's estate arranging for their papers to go to, you know, some library or some institution upon their death or even before their death, you know, whatever. Like you do with your material Mm -hmm. what you want. And if you die and you have a manuscript or you're – old and someone is running your estate, your estate for you and they, the and they decide to put right like like what's happening with Ghost set mm-hmm. watchmen and i you know i think i have mostly accepted that we're never going to really know who decided that this was getting published but i feel weird about the friend of someone like taking personal correspondence and selling that mm. i just like It makes me hope I never get famous. Like Amanda and I have this deal that if one of us gets hit by a truck, the other one is going to delete all of the, you know, our text messages, (laughs) all your (laughs)
1: Slack DMs. Yeah,
0: like Amanda will come into my house and just tell Bob to leave her alone with my computer and my (laughs) phone for an hour and just burn the whole thing down. I just would. I just think that's it. To me, it seems like a a, violation—a personal correspondence that was sent in confidence and not written with the anticipation that that it would ever be. Public, like this is a letter that is talking about her father sitting there in the room with her. I don't, I don't know. I feel, I feel weird about it.
1: I guess I, i've I've spent some time in university archives, and university archives do also buy material directly from the authors, but they also collect, you know, miscellany. You know, that's what they call mm-hmm. like that. Other people who are related sell. So maybe I'm just. More used to this kind of thing. I guess being,
0: choose your friends wisely. And hope they don't sell yeah, your stuff. Well,
1: on the other hand, she just made her friends' estate a quarter million bucks. So there's that. There's that angle as well. Um, but anyway, if you got a cool um, two fifty large laying around and you want <laughs> six letters, that's not that many. Um, weird. I
0: want to know what our listeners think about it. Okay. too. let us yeah, know. Yeah, let us
1: know where you stand on the great. Uh,
0: would you read them? I, th- I would feel weird reading them. Of, uh,
1: of uh, ought, uh, well, we're not in the odds anymore. Twenty fifteen, like,
0: like someone they published Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal yeah. last year. Do you remember that? Yeah. And one of one of our contributors wrote about feeling super weird about reading someone else's prayer journal. Mm-hmm. And this, and I get that. I don't think that I want to read something that's that personal that wasn't written with the intention of being published. That was O'Connor's um,
1: estate, I believe. Too. I mean, not to throw yeah. the Shinsky's razor back in your face, but.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> You know, <laughs> however you want. I to think didn't about say that. they were the same. No, they're no, just I understand. Similar.
0: I understand. Uh, Jeff, we just—I'm arbitrating the things that make me feel squicky. No, I now. understand. Okay? I
1: understand. <laughs> I'm just trying to see if there's there is some underlying foundation, or it's just sort of <laughs> nebular squickiness.
0: Nebular squickiness is how I'm rolling. Yes. you're just going to have to deal. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, all right. Let's go. Every year, Amazon announces the. And I'm going to put a giant asterisk. I'm making an asterisk sign with uh-huh. my hand right now.
0: Scare quotes, yes. man.
1: Announces the most well-read cities in America, based on what? Basically, based on how many people buy crap from Amazon, <laughs> and you know, mm-hmm. e-books and books and subscriptions to magazines and newspapers. Um, it's a bad. It's a bad proxy for well-read, but it's the data Amazon has. I'll at least say that. Um, It's also, is it better than that other one we do from, isn't it the University of Cincinnati or something like that? That they well, also yeah, do their is, most well-read cities or something. That's, I don't
0: know if it's better, but they're both weird proxies. I think if like, you put them
1: together, you get something interesting. Mm-hmm. And then the cities aren't that different, to be honest.
0: And we should say that Amazon does this because Amazon is smart and no one's going to pass around a headline about cities that love Amazon yeah, the Yeah, and we're, I
1: link to it and we're talking about it now. So bravo, uh, bravo Amazon PR marketing people.
0: Yeah, here we are. Here we
1: are. Uh, we're back talking about it. But anyway, um, there's been a... And for the last couple of years, we've done this. We've looked at it. Um, we talked about the show last year. How many years are we mm-hmm. in the show? I think with two years, we've talked about it. Every this year it comes our,
0: out. Yeah, I think we're in our third Their spring third together. Spring. Now. So
1: we've talked about it several times. Um, and so we're going to keep talking about it. The, the difference here is that there's a new number one. And, there is. And last year, the number one was Washington, D.C., uh, and this year it's Seattle, Washington. Uh, which is the home of Amazon? So I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Um, I guess let's go with the assumption that Amazon is not fudging their own numbers; that they're not giving us mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: that's right because they
1: don't actually give us any numbers here, do they? No, there's no, no numbers.
0: No, a- numbers on an Amazon. No, that's thing? a
1: really good, really
0: good point. <laughs> oh man. It's I'm going to buy Jen- hand waving chicanery. Yeah, I
1: guess if uh, Bezos ever, uh, his letters about actual numbers come up for auction, I'll put in a, a stealth <laughs> bid at Christie's. Uh, down I hope here.
0: Bezos has an agreement with someone to burn his text messages yeah, down because I, I would read that business.
1: Yeah. Well, you get some of that in the everything store. Um, are, you, are you trying to make my life more difficult? Do you remember that in the book? Yeah. Bezos would turn to people and say, I don't know if you're drunk or you're being serious, but I hope you're drunk. Based on what you just said. Anyway, sounds like a tough (laughs) boss. But anyway, so Seattle is one, Portland, Las Vegas, Tucson, Washington, D.C., Austin, Texas, San Francisco, Albuquerque, Denver, Louisville, Kentucky, Charlotte, Baltimore, San Diego, Houston, Indianapolis, San Jose, Jacksonville, Florida, San Antonio, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, and Chicago, Illinois. So there's your Interesting. There's a couple ones that um, you may be surprised not to see on there. Uh, that I think we've talked about before. One is is my uh, my my beloved New York City, yep. not on here. Um, another one that's not on here that I'm surprised by, I have to admit, is Boston, Massachusetts, which mm. is uh, well known as having the largest, the highest concentration of graduate degrees to population. And you would think there would be some correlation between that, but maybe they just all shop at the great Harvard Square bookstore, or you know somewhere mm. else that's not on Amazon, or you know get their newspapers locally or things like that. Because th- that's all that kind of thing. Not so. I'm a little surprised about Portland. I have to admit, being number yeah, two. Yeah, that is
0: interesting. They've
1: got a really good book scene, and and uh, to my mind, the best bookstore in, in North America, the the inimitable Powell's. Um, but I do think that Powell's greatness. You know, it still is. It's downtown. It's huge, but it kind of is the black hole of book buying in Portland. Hmm. So it's a little harder to get to bookstores, or you know. So I wonder if like people live twenty or thirty minutes away, and rather than drive thirty minutes to get the one book they just buy on. I'm just this is all you know, conjecture. What here. would be
0: interesting is to mix this list with the. List that we have of um, the cities that have the most bookstores per capita. Mm, that's interesting. And to see if there's crossover yeah. or not, because I would, I, I'm, I would guess that the cities that have the most Amazon activity, that there's, there would be an inverse relationship between. Amazon activity and availability of bookstores. Not just indie bookstores, but big boxes and college bookstores and stuff as well. And Boston is saturated. There are tons of... Tons of of good
1: bookstores.
0: University bookstores and indie bookstores and tiny hole-in-the-wall used bookstores Mm -hmm. and everything in between. And that would be that'd be interesting. Maybe I'll do that in some of my copious free yeah. time.
1: The other thing I was thinking about too is, you know, I, this year I've been doing my Busman's MBA, and I've been looking at think, you know, learning about data and statistics I mean, some of this could just be random scat. I mean, mm-hmm. why is a city's boundaries a particularly good unit of literary measurement? Right? Like, right. why why should Baltimore city limits? because you know, a lot of these places have suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. Which is it? It's not the portrait. Portland metropolitan area it's Portland proper which is relatively bounded Seattle is the same way one thing about New York is that the city limits are actually giant like a lot of the metropolitan area of New York which is i think 11 million people is actually 8 million is in New York which for a big urban center is a relatively high ratio of people actually living within the city limits mm-hmm. um, so i don't know There's, i wonder how useful this actually is like to see Las Vegas for example above San Francisco is weird. And I, I don't know why that might be. Maybe it's because there are not a bunch of great bookstores in Las Vegas. And so why does that make them more well? It's, you know, it's the whole, the whole Amazon thing put together. Yeah. I was actually trying to think of what statistic I'd like to know that Amazon could give me as maybe a more interesting thought experiment. But um, hmm. yeah, it sure. would be
0: interesting to know if there were numbers like how many or Amazon orders per capita does it take to rank number one yes. and then to rank number 20 how much difference is there between what happens in Seattle at number one and what happens in Chicago yeah, at number 20 and what does it look like below 20 like did they cut off at 20 because that's that makes for a nice easy list and around headline or is there a fall off after the top 20 and like I yeah I'd like to see the whole mm-hmm. setup is there a bell curve situation happening here yeah or a laugher
1: curve or some other kinds of curve a curve ball maybe I don't know what's <laughs> going on here um so that's, that's that list with all the grains of salt that we can muster uh, there. Oh, yeah, we, we, you've heard us talk, maybe not quite to ad nauseum, but to add queasiness uh, about Lumberjanes, which is the um, great graphic. Well, it's not a graphic novel. It's a comic book series. It um, is a comic
0: book series. There is nothing queasy about it. Well, no, But I got what you were doing yes, there. yeah, you saw.
1: <laughs> um, that's written by, uh, created by three women, Shannon Waters, Grace Ellis, and Noelle Stevenson. And it's going to be a movie.
0: I'm so excited about this i'm if to borrow from liberty, I could not be happier if I broke out in chaos yes,
1: uh, the story follows a group of girls spending the summer at a scout camp where they encounter strange creatures and other supernatural phenomenon um, my My memory of this, and I don't know if I remember this right, is that the creators got together because they they realized that there weren't great comics about girls of this mm-hmm. age, uh, which they're like, what, 10 to 13 is the age range of the characters in the book. Um, maybe I'm I wrong think, about that.
0: I think the characters I would guess are like more in the, well, it's hard to tell. I would put them in the, like, they're old enough to like date and be interested in relationships. Tweens? Are they
1: tweens?
0: They're tweenish to like 15 okay. maybe.
1: All
0: right. You know, it's kind of ambiguous and that's and I think it's a, one of the perks of the series, one of the things I mean, that they are strengths. I mean, young enough to be at yeah. Scout
1: Camp, right? Yeah, yes.
0: and the content, right, they're at Scout Camp, um, there's mythology, there are like feminist references, there's pop culture, the voice of it is really fun. Um, I I love this series, and my friend's 10-year-old kid mm. loves this series as well. Like, It has those multiple layers where readers of all ages can enjoy it.
1: So it's going to be a live-action adaptation. Yes. It's going to be written by a dude, which there was some... Mm-hmm. agita about? Um, I don't know, man. I, I'm not sure if that matters to me. Does that matter to you?
0: I'm a little. Um, you know, maybe it matters more than a little okay. to me. It's it's not like women just have opportunities falling out of their eyeballs in Hollywood. And right. so it would be cool to see a story that is, you know, by women and for and about girls get told uh, by a female director. But this guy, um, Will Widger, who is adapting it, also wrote Munchkin, which is also a Mm. movie that's adapted um, from a comic. And so he has experience doing that. And certainly adapting a story from a comic is a different thing than adapting a story from a prose novel. So I can see, you know, I can kind of see that there. I just want it to be done well. The book is so great. This is such a good comic. I just want it to be really good.
1: Live action, Um, So Mm -hmm. that should be interesting. I kind of wish it was animated. Like, you know, DreamWorks, you know, that was like CGI or something. But, you know, I'm sure it'll be fun. Anyway, so that's adaptation news we're interested in. Yeah,
0: we'll see a Dreamcast of that uh, happening probably on panels pretty soon. Uh, More adaptation news I'm interested in, at least, is that um, the... Writer-director pair of Portlandia, Jonathan Crissell um, and Graham, Ra- Graham Wagner are going to adapt Mermaids in Paradise by Lydia Millett for the big screen. Um, one of my favorite books of last year. Um, I'm really interested to see what it does in paperback. I didn't think it really got as much buzz as I wanted it to to uh, to get, but I'm excited to see that happen. Is that Cat short for? stories
1: or is that a novel?
0: Uh, no, it's a novel about novel. a couple who are on their honeymoon in the Caribbean. And um, she has kind of an Amy Dunn from Gone Girl voice. Mm. Uh, she doesn't, there's a little like a little contempt for her husband. So they're on the, their honeymoon and some people diving in the reef near the big resort that they're staying at discover actual mermaids. Oh, there. I
1: remember you talking about this now. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes.
0: And so then, like, the giant corporation that owns the resort. Wants to capitalize on that and turn it into an amusement park attraction type thing. And the woman and her husband team up with some like science conservation people that are also visiting the resort to try to protect the mermaids. And over the course of their one week honeymoon, there's like mercenaries and someone gets murdered or Mm. pretend murdered and kidnapped. And it's very over the top. Um, uh, The voice is really really uh, fun to spend time with. And she like I I don't know I love like a good bitter female narrator (laughs) in fiction. Mm. She. Was
1: great. <laughs> <laughs> we linked this week also just to talk about other the Michael Fassbender stars as Macbeth and a new version of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. That looks super good, by the way. It does. Um, there's another trailer I was going to talk about. Real quick. I can't. Uh, it doesn't come to mind.
0: Oh, the Aziz Ansari trailer. Oh yeah, though. is Aziz that what you're thinking the, of?
1: Well, that and then oh, John Green's uh, the Paper Towns mm. trailer of the new John Green adaptation, which is coming out this fall too. Um, I guess we're we're starting to get promos for the fall movie season. And fall movies are kind of the, you know, mix it with everything else, but tends to be a little more on the award-seeking heavy side, and those bo- and those movies tend to be on the adaptation-heavy side. So mm-hmm. um, it's what I'm saying is we're coming to the thick of movie adaptation season. We're seeing some of what we're going to see there. Some interesting stuff going on there. Okay, let's talk about more interesting stuff. Audible.com is the leading worldwide provider of audiobooks. Go to audibletrial.com slash bookride to get a free 30-day trial and a audio book of your choice so uh, i don't know what to say here 180,000 audio programs and they say audio programs is not just books there's courses a new yorker magazine articles short books all co- interviews um there's even they've even branched out into doing some like interview shows and podcasts we talked about one with Michael Ian Black mm-hmm. um and Tavi Gevison and some of the other people Mike, Michael Ian Black was hosting a limited run series there um, almost every genre you can reasonably expect to hope to get there. You can get it on you know, any kind of portable device that you can get MP3s on. Over 500 devices um, you can play Audible on. You get a free app for your iPhone or uh, Windows phone or your Android device. Um, I just finished a book that is as Jeff of a current Jeff of a <laughs> book as ever has been done. It's called um, The Making of Behavioral Economics by Robert Thaler, which he's a, um, uh, a uh, well, in economics and now a behavioral economics. And basically he was the one of the, I guess, pioneers of behavioral economics. Um, he was uh, trying to look for something to do for, for an interesting project. And he started reading the work of Daniel, Danny Kahneman, who, as you may know, is the author of one of my favorite books of the recent years and one that I refer to, Thinking Fast and Slow, about cognitive biases. Um, and basically Bob Taylor took the ideas of thinking fast, well, the book became Thinking Fast and Flow like many years after Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, but took the ideas of Kahneman and um, uh, Kahneman's collaborator, I think it's Tolovosky, Amir Tolovosky, I I don't remember the name exactly. But then he applied those to economics because apparently in standard economic theory, you know, it's kind of this perfect world where everyone always works and makes decisions in their best economic interest. And what shook up economics was the idea that they don't always do things. Um, we, as humans, don't always operate in our only our best economic interests. We have not only biases, but we value things differently. We act inconsistently. Um, we pay attention to things like sunk costs. So something like, um, I've been trying to start a business, and it's not working. And I'm like, I better put another $100,000 into it to get this thing to work. Because we've realized I've already put $200,000 into it. So I need to put more money to try to get my $200,000 back. Well, that's kind of like saying, well, I've lost $1,000 the roulette wheel, so I better bet another $1,000. So all sorts of endowment effects where you tend to value the thing you have. Let's say you have a a coffee mug worth $5. It'll actually take more than $5 to get you to buy it because just your sheer ownership, you imbue it with some value. Um, All kinds of interesting things like that. Um, And the book is about sort of the history it's a combination of a history of the development of behavioral economics with some of the principal ideas of behavioral economics. Uh, it's more, if you like Freakonomics, this is like that, except with more rigor and like actual premises and stuff. Like Freakonomics tends to be like interesting stories about money and numbers. They have some they have some structure, but this is like academic papers that are cited. It's very non-technical, so you can understand it. But I really liked it. I recommend it to Shinsky and several other people on our side. Um, that would be interested. So that's my that's audio my, uh, audiobook pick this week.
0: I've been, I finally finished Missoula.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: I know you've all been reading. Right. Uh, I've been listening to Gumption by Nick Offerman. It's his new book that's essentially like American history, according to Nick Offerman. He starts thinking about what he thinks, you know, makes a great and interesting American, and he decides that the unifying quality is gumption. And in this book, he features 25 people from American history, 25 figures that uh, that he thinks embody this notion of gumption. And some of them are the typical ones that you would expect, you know, founding fathers. But also there's a chapter about, like, Yoko Ono and mm. why he admires and loves her. Uh, so that, like great Nick Offerman voice. I'm still a little bit confused as to how much of Nick Offerman's books is Nick Offerman and the extent to which Ron Swanson and Nick Offerman are the same person, or 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 like Nick Offerman is playing a character named Nick Offerman. It has a little bit of a performative feeling to it, but the audio is a a really fun thing to spend time with. And certainly a welcome change of pace after the heaviness of Missoula. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just... So I have to tell you about this one that I just downloaded that I haven't started listening to yet because our great friend and colleague Jen told me about reading the book last week. Um, it's called My Grandfather Would Would Have Shot Me by Jennifer Tiege. Um, she is a German-Nigerian woman, and she was in the library one day, just like plucking a book from the shelf, and she recognized a photo of her mother and grandmother in the book and discovered that her grandfather was Eamon Geth, who's this he's the Nazi commandant that Rafe Fiennes played in. Schindler's List, hmm. um, and so she is a black woman who was raised in an orphanage and eventually adopted. And her biological family has these Nazi roots. Um, Jen said the book was really incredible. We were talking; just it came up at lunch last week, and I have to hear the story. So I have checked that out. Wow. On Audible. Okay, that sounds also. interesting.
1: Cool. Yeah. All right, new books time.
0: New books. I just got one this okay. week. Um, I'm giving it all to this one because this is one of my favorite books of the year. Um, Saint Maisie by Jamie Attenberg came out this week. This is about, uh, it's set, it begins in Jazz Age, New York City in the 1920s, about a woman named Maisie Phillips whose family owns a movie theater and she works in the ticket counters that is sort of based like out on the sidewalk. So she spends her days standing in this booth and she gets to know all of the people who come to the theater. She gets to know all of the people who work up and down the uh, the streets who you know walk through the city and who live in her neighborhood. And as it moves through um, Prohibition and then through the Great Depression, she doesn't ever have a family of her own. She has some great romances, but never gets married or has children. Her, um, her siblings go through difficult times in their lives. She's there for her family, and she becomes this saint of her neighborhood, where after the Great Depression, she sort of takes it on herself mm. to take care of the men who live on the street in her neighborhood. Um, the whole book is set. Set up as though a documentarian has found Maisie's diary like 90 years after she started writing it. Mm. And the documentarian who runs the novel is interviewing, is reading from the diary, and then is interviewing uh, other people who lived in the neighborhoods that Maisie grew up in, is interviewing a historian who knows things about Coney Island, where Maisie lived for a period of her life. Is someone else is like a descendant of one of Maisie's neighbors or was related to Maisie's brother in law. All all sorts of things. There are all these different voices that come together to tell the story. It's so charming. And Maisie is this, like, just, you know, moxie-filled female character. Um, One of the best and most interesting characters that I've read in fiction in a long time and a really memorable heroine for the story. And then the story behind the story is really awesome, too. Jamie Attenberg was reading old New Yorker profiles, Mm. like, from decades ago and came across a profile of a real woman named Maisie. Who had many of these characteristics and then it started imagining other pieces of her life, and that's how the novel was born. Mm, cool. It's really great. <laughs>
1: Sounds great. Um, that's our show. It is. Uh, we'll be back next week with more, you know, what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the b- world of books and reading. You can <laughs> find show notes to this show at uh, bookwright.com slash podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at the Jeff O'Neill O-N-E-A-L. You can follow Rebecca at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. If you'd like to tell us what you think about the au- au- uh, auctioning of some Harper Lee letters to... Uh, the guy's name is Harold Caulfield, which means I'm always going to think Holden Caulfield. Holden. Um, mm-hmm. You can shoot us an email about that or anything else. You got ideas, questions, comments. The email address is podcast at bookriot.com. Thanks so much to Scribd for sponsoring the show, to Audible to sponsoring the show. Enter the Darkness for sponsoring the show.
0: When Darkness Ends.
1: When Darkness Ends. <laughs> what's the name of the author?
0: Uh, I closed my form. <laughs>
1: oh, no. Well, let's get that. Let's see.
0: Alexandra Ivy. When Darkness Ends when darkness by Alexandra When Darkness Ends Ivy. by
1: Alexandra Ivy. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show, making it all possible. And of course, all of you out there listening, making it so that people will find it a good value to listen to the show. I think that's all we've got for this. That, that, that's this week. our week. That's it.
0: It's a full list Yeah, you
1: know what? I just realized we're... We're gonna get we're gonna get the new El James and the new Harper Lee within like a fourteen day window. Yep, very exciting times. Very very. It's gonna exciting. be
0: it's gonna be a big summer, man. All right,
1: thanks so much, everybody.
0: Have a good one.